electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson. On this podcast, we usually bring you in-depth, candid conversations with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders from interviews recorded in front of audiences at CNBC's live events. However, as we and everyone navigate this pandemic and practice social distancing, we're conducting interviews remotely and bringing you those conversations here on this podcast. Today, you're going to hear a conversation from CNBC's Healthy Returns Conference. It was held on May 12, 2020. It was a virtual event, and at it, we heard from some of healthcare's top CEOs about how their companies are addressing the coronavirus crisis and the lasting effects that this pandemic will have on the industry and society at large. My colleague, Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter, led several of the interviews. She was instrumental in developing the content plan of the whole event, and she joins me now. Meg, welcome. Good to have you with us. Well, thanks, Ty. So at that conference, I got to interview Stefan Bonsell, who's the CEO of Moderna. That company is developing a vaccine for COVID-19, and it received fast-track designation from the FDA for their uh, vaccine project. They're already about to start phase two human clinical trials. I also got to speak with Dr. Len Schleifer, the founder and CEO of Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. This is the company that already broke records with the development of a treatment for Ebola. Now it's trying to beat that record with a COVID-19 therapy. With both of these companies operating at full speed ahead, my first question to these CEOs was, how can you work so quickly? You'll hear Dr. Schleifer answer first. Let me just start out by saying that what we're going to talk about here is reflective of decades of investment. Um, People who know Regeneron and and have followed us for a while knew that the first 25 years of the company, uh, we actually... uh, lost money every single year. Uh, But we continue to invest in technology and uh, the technology is getting better and better and better. We've used this technology as a way to make human antibodies. What the immune system normally does when it's faced with a virus, it makes antibodies uh, because it wants to fight this invader. Um, When we have an effective vaccine, Hopefully, Stefan and others will bring that to the market. A vaccine tricks the body into making these antibodies. But no matter what, it takes some time and it, it takes some work on the body. So even on day one, you're not ready to go if you've seen a new bug. It takes a while. We can make these antibodies in our new technology. As you said, normally it takes years and years to do all this. We sped it up with Ebola. We knew that there was a big problem. And the Ebola uh, opportunity Uh, taught us a lot of things and we could set the land speed record uh, of getting into patients in about nine months. Now we hope to do it in five months. Our team was just entirely focused. The day that they had the sequence, they were on this new virus. They were making what they needed to make. They were putting the virus in the magical mice. We were doing things in parallel. We were taking risks. And this, I think, speaks to the fact that everybody has to understand this only happens when you have a robust biotechnology industry that has invested in technology and biology for decades. Absolutely. 
Uh, Stefan, tell us a little bit about what you're doing differently here in terms of envisioning the trials even taking place on top of one another as you get certain data from one, you're starting the next. How are you managing to compress these timelines in such an unprecedented way? So I think it's a bit similar to what Len just said is, I mean, first the technology. I mean, we have, as you know, Meg, invested for now nine years uh, in the technology, you know, maybe six, $700 million just going into pure science. This is the 10th vaccine we are putting into clinical studies. So there's been a lot of learning there. We have worked with uh, Dr. Tony Sfarci team on the Middle East respiratory syndrome, another coronavirus, you know, for almost two years now. And our manufacturing plant. When we build our manufacturing plant, uh, a lot of people, you know, said, you know, this is too early, you guys are crazy. And if we had worked with contract manufacturers, we could never have moved so fast. And I think, of course, the, the FDA and the dialogue we've had with the FDA, which is almost literally daily, uh, as we have questions, as we're trying together to figure out how do we move fast, but safely. In everything we do, you know, safety is extremely important. And of course, even more with vaccines, because you give vaccines to healthy people in your clinical studies, but also commercially down the road if we get there. And so safety is very important. So one of the things we've done is, uh, you know, as the phase two uh, uh, is going to start, you know, any day now, is really to think about what is the minimum body of data we need given the risk we were to start the phase two. And what we agreed is that safety was very important to have a safety from a phase one. But in normal times, we would have waited for antibody levels, look at all the data, ask you know, experts, and only then start to make the phase two material if success in phase one, and then recruit and start the site for phase two. So here we say, look, life's at stake. Let's make the phase two material at risk during the phase one. Let's not wait for the immunogenicity, the neutralization antibody data. Let's just go into phase two as soon as we know uh, the, the safety of a phase one is, is positive. And so you got the go ahead from the FDA to start the phase two, knowing the safety from the phase one is positive. When will we get to see those phase one data? So as soon as the NIH and ourselves feel that there is you know, data to be shared, so as you know, the, the phase one study is being conducted by, by Dr. Tony Fauci and his team. So as soon as we have data that makes sense, we will, of course, share it. We know everybody's eager to see the data. And I would say same thing on the preclinical data. I mean, as you know, in some therapeutic area like cancer that you know, Len and his company know very well, uh, you know, preclinical models are complicated to translate into human. Uh, but in infectious disease, that has been shown by many companies before us, if you get the right animal model, you can do a challenge into an animal where you vaccinate them and then you give them a very high dose of a virus and you can see, you know, are we getting protection? And so that also preclinical work should be published pretty soon now. I'm sure we'll be looking eagerly to see that. Um, Len, I wonder if you can tell us just a little bit about your confidence level in your antibody approach working. You know, when you talk to a lot of people who know the industry well, including Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who we had on earlier, he always brings up Regeneron as one of the companies he's watching to give us a new tool potentially come the fall. And you have done this, of course, for Ebola just recently using your magical mice, as you call them. So, you know, we hear about there's only a 10% uh, success rate in getting a new drug across the finish line when you start the development, but where would you put your probability of success in COVID-19 for your antibody approach? 
That's a great question, Meg. I appreciate uh, Dr. Gottlieb's uh, mentioning of what we do. Um, I have to say that we're pretty optimistic for two different reasons. The first reason is what we're trying to do is simply to imitate what nature normally does. If you think about a newborn or, or a baby developing in utero, that baby doesn't have a great immune system. So what does nature do? The mother sends her antibodies across the placenta so that if anything gets to the baby, that baby is protected by those antibodies. That's a passive transfer of her antibodies to the baby's antibodies. After that baby is born, uh, the first mother's milk and subsequent to that, milk provides antibodies because the baby's um, immune system is really not up to snuff. So this passive transfer of antibodies is a very natural uh, thing. And it goes on all the time, as I said, in those contexts. But it was also shown, actually the first Nobel Prize uh, ever awarded for medicine or physiology was for uh, immunology, where um, von Behring had discovered that if you took people who were already exposed to diphtheria, they had an antibody that could be given to other people and it could help them recover from diphtheria. So the concept of passive transfer is something we're just trying to imitate, so it gives us great optimism. Now, the second factor is, can we actually get good antibodies and does our technology deliver this same type of passive transfer? Well, we've been making half a dozen or more drugs with these mice. We know how to make the antibodies and the most relevant antibodies we've made is a cocktail for Ebola, where we actually showed you could save lives in a study that was done in the Congo. And it was a study that was done really importantly, not an observational study, not a case control study, but a study that was done based upon randomized, controlled, well-controlled data. And that's the kind of data that gives you confidence. And when we saw that data, that study was stopped early because the data were overwhelmingly positive. In fact, uh, in that study was remdesivir, um, and remdesivir really didn't perform all that well relative to our antibody cocktail. So we have a lot of confidence that we can make the right antibodies, we can select the right antibodies, we know how to scale them up, that's going on, and all we're doing is imitating what's known to work, giving antibodies like a mother gives a baby, like people have transferred plasma to people. This is not breakthrough conceptually, it's breakthrough technologically. Coming up on the keynote, are drug makers considering human challenge trials where healthy people are infected with a virus in order to test a vaccine more quickly? Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to the keynote. I'm Meg Terrell. You're listening to my conversation with Moderna's Stefan Bonsell and Regeneron's Len Schleifer from CNBC's Healthy Returns Conference on May 12, 2020. 
We've got a viewer question I want to bring to you guys from Gunner. He asks, what is the industry doing to partner with hospitals or clinical researchers to enroll these trials so quickly? Part of setting that land speed record, as Len put it, is reliant on getting study drug to patients. How are you both uh, doing this? And, and maybe we'll start with Stefan. Yeah, so indeed, to achieve this type of timelines, it's about preparing early and extraordinary collaboration. And so we talk to hospitals, you know, that we're working with, you know, way ahead of a study. So if you can look back at our phase two, that's going to start soon, uh, for which we got the green light last week. We have been talking about it to the sites and the investigator for quite some time. My team is actually spending most of the time now preparing the phase three that we see could start in early summer. And so you want to be ahead of the game. You want to really engage, uh, get them engaged in the protocol design, get their input so that you get the best outcome as quickly as you can. Yes, Kevin's right. Uh, engaging the investigators is really critical. But I'll say this. There's two factors. Uh, we've been at this for a long time. There's two factors in play always, always, always. One is, is there an unmet medical need? Obviously, there's a huge unmet medical need here. And two is, is there promise or belief that your approach might work? Um, we, unfortunately, located in New York, we were in the epicenter of this pandemic in Westchester County, where our company was located. I'm happy to say we had very few cases at the company itself, but there were so many patients. Um, and I must say, Governor Cuomo did a fabulous job of letting the public know we were teetering on overwhelming the system. At any rate, because the system had so many patients, sometimes in clinical trials, you're lucky to enroll a couple of patients a week. That would be a lot sometimes. We enrolled in the height of all this uh, for our earlier trials with Kevzara over 100 patients in a single day. So I have to say that uh, the combination of need, which is overwhelming, uh, and promise, um, which I think people are able to assess, uh, is what drives enrollment. Well, I want to ask you a question about that, because one of the things we've observed before with uh, drugs or vaccines developed for outbreaks is that the science is not fast enough to keep up with the infection. And often what happens is we saw this early on with Ebola, we saw this with Zika, we saw this with SARS, and to some extent with MERS, that while there were projects underway, the infections burned themselves out before the drugs or vaccines could be tested uh, in areas where there was a lot of active infection. Um, one potential solution to that and also to get results faster that's been brought up by some respected epidemiologists, infectious disease experts, and bioethicists is what's known as human challenge trials. The idea that you would actually give the virus to volunteers, to healthy volunteers, uh, to test how well uh, typically a vaccine works. Um, this is something that we've never really talked about before in medicine in the United States. I wonder about both of your thoughts about this idea. And Stefan, since you're developing a vaccine that is one of the furthest along, has the idea of human challenge trials come up? Yes, so we have been discussing it uh, with a team and our advisors. Uh, there has been challenge done before, uh, for example, for RSV, there's been challenge done. And one of the key criteria from an ethical standpoint is, do you have medicines in case the vaccine will not work? to be able, of course, to ensure people don't get disease or severe disease, or of course, in that case, with uh, SARS-CoV-2, you know, death. Uh, and so uh, we want to be part of a dialogue. Uh, there's a lot of consideration, obviously, from an ethical standpoint, which is priority number one. Uh, 
I know there are several groups in several universities, and I think the NIH as well is working on trying to write white papers and have the right expert uh, around the table. I think, for example, if in our general drugs were to show positive outcome in the clinic, which we are all optimistic about, having such a tool will be a, a great component of how do you design such a study. Uh, but in the case of Moderna, what I think might be interesting because you need to also figure out what's the dose of a virus you're going to give. You need to have a GMP setup of a virus because it has to be well controlled so you understand your study. If you think about it, I mean, we uh, are aiming at starting our uh, placebo control, randomized, you know, pivotal study phase three uh, in early summer. And if we do it large enough, which we believe we should be able to do because of a great sponsorship we had from BARDA, where we get basically got you know, $483 million to run a very, very large study because we don't know where the attack rate is going to be in uh, early fall. But if you think about it, if we're able to run you know, thousands and thousands of healthy subjects getting vac vaccinated, and then into the potentially, you know, uh, second wave in the fall, we should be able to get uh, efficacy readout actually pretty quickly, maybe even faster than getting uh, a challenge study uh, set up properly without having all the ethical considerations. So we want to be part of a dialogue. We are open to any group that is conducting such uh, a study, uh, but we might be able to go as fast, if not faster, just by running a plan efficacy study because we are so close to doing so. Hmm. Len, what are your thoughts on, on the concept of that? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, but let's frame the problem so we can understand whether the solution fits. What is the problem? If you're doing a preventive trial, like we would like to do with our cocktail, or Stefan will do with a vaccine, you're relying on what is the background rate of people getting infected without your drug. If you put 5,000 people in a trial and you had a background rate of infection over the course of three months or something of 1%, you'd have only 50 people perhaps uh, that was uh, uh, that became positive in the placebo group. That's if you had 5,000 people in that placebo group. So you might have to have another 5,000 to show that you prevented half of those people or something because you want to go from 50 to 25. You know, you need a lot of people. So that's the problem. That's the nub of the problem you're getting at. That is when you're trying to do prevention, you're relying on the natural disease frequency. Now, if the frequency is high, you're going into a, a nursing home or something like that, or first responders or, or healthcare workers, maybe you can do those types of studies, family members and so on. What the challenge study tends uh, is trying to think about is can we change the numbers? So instead of having to study 10,000 people, you might be able to study 100 people. Think how much quicker you could get that done. Now, what are the what are the challenges, if you will, of a challenge study? Um, it's really uh, the challenge of the unknown. Um, we do know, for example, that people who are young, who might be uh, good uh, uh, volunteers for this, that is people from 20 to 30, have a very low rate of very serious disease. But we learn a lot about this virus every day. And we learn that there's some, there are late sequelae we're now even seeing in children, this Kawasaki-like syndrome. So I think one has to have an ethical um, perspective that cannot be put forth by people like Stefan and myself, the people who are highly conflicted, because we obviously want to go forward. We want to do this fast. We want to get results. 
and that creates our conflict. We can only lay out what we know, and it will be up to independent ethical groups, perhaps the NIH, university uh, scholars in this field, to weigh in. I'm sure there will be no shortage of people willing to volunteer. The question is not whether people would volunteer to do this. The question is whether uh, uh, how the ethics come out. And we have to leave that up uh, to the ethicists after providing them the information. Still to come, when we do have a vaccine or a treatment for COVID-19, demand will exceed capacity. So who gets the drugs first? Don't go away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back to the keynote. I'm Meg Terrell. You're listening to my conversation with Moderna's Stefan Bonsell and Regeneron's Len Schleifer from CNBC's Healthy Returns Conference on May 12, 2020. I have to get to some more viewer questions because we're getting so many good ones. I'm going to stick on the, the subject of ethics um, a little bit. And, and this one really is about um, access once your products get developed, which we hope that they will and they'll be successful. Uh, one person asks, can you discuss how access programs for new vaccines or treatments for COVID-19 might be designed? Daniel O'Day, Gilead CEO, of course, has said remdesivir will be accessible, but details are scanned. Uh, and of course, as we're watching that rollout in the U.S., we're seeing that um, it's not getting everywhere. It, it potentially needs to go and there might not be enough. Um, do you have any thoughts or ideas on how uh, these kinds of access programs might be designed, uh, Stefan? Sure. So what is clear and I'm talking about the vaccine, is that we at the global level are not going to have enough supply. Um, as I've said before uh, uh, on your show, uh, I'm really rooting for every vaccine manufacturers because I really hope that all of your programs get to the finish line. Of course, as we know, the odds that every program works are, are, are really low, obviously. But I really hope that we have you know, three, four, five vaccines because no manufacturers can make enough doses for the planet. And so what is going to happen, uh, I believe, and we are starting to have discussions with, for example, the U.S. government about it, which is how do we provide access? How do you prioritize? And we believe this is not a company decision. Uh, this has been done by the clinical community, uh, being coordinated across the country. And so we're going to continue to work very closely, as we have done before, with you know, NIAD and Dr. Fauci's team, you know, with the CDC uh, to figure out uh, what's the best plan for access within the country. And what we'll make sure is that every time we make a new lot of product and it's approved by quality control and we think it's a, it's a good lot, we will, of course, make it available and be basically hand to mouth. I can anticipate that 
as different vaccines potentially get to approval, uh, we're going to be for at least a year, year and a half, really with a tight, tight supply across the country and across the world. Mm. And Len, I'll give the last word to you as I can't believe we're almost out of time already. Um, given what you've observed so far of how the system has worked for distributing remdesivir, and it is early days, are you confident that if the United States government is helping with the coordination of distribution of your medicine, it will be done in, in the most equitable way? Yeah, look, any medicine that we come up with um, that can make a difference has to be both accessible and affordable. Uh, and the problem is not just within the country. Obviously, we think country first, but it really will be a global problem. Um, and it'll be a question of sometimes it'll be a question of whether or not there's even a distribution capability in some of low income um, countries around the globe, for example, if it requires a cold chain, something simple as that. And so I think that we have some challenges. We have the distribution capability to give out drugs, we, whether you go to your local CVS or you go to your doctor, you can get a vaccine, you can get a subcutaneous shot, um, you can get an infusion in the hospital. The distribution aspect in the United States, the physical distribution, I think is more than adequate. I do think that there will be a capacity issue. And like Stefan, we're not the only people who are trying to make an antibody cocktail. There are a lot of other good, fine companies that are working on this. I know Lily's at it and there are others. And we need multiple successes because the demand will far exceed the capacity. Um, we simply cannot do this on a uh, auction basis. Whatever state or local area or company um, wants to pay the highest amount to get access, we can't do it that way. We're going to need some rational approach. And this is when we're in these types of emergencies, this is a role for governments, federal governments, governments around the, uh, in the United States, governments around the world, state governments. We have to make sure this is done equitable uh, and, and, and does the greatest amount of good. That was Len Schleifer, the founder and CEO of Regeneron. Also participating in that conversation, Stefan Bunsell, the CEO of Moderna. They joined CNBC's Healthy Returns Conference held online on May 12, 2020. And Ty, I've never seen anything like this before in terms of the speed that these companies are, are working at to try to develop a vaccine and a drug. I mean, the entire industry is really coming together on unprecedented levels here. Yeah, the whole world is, uh, is moving at a speed I've never seen before. Obviously, billions of dollars are at, at stake here. Billions of dollars have been pumped into the research uh, efforts, uh, both for therapies and for vaccines. I am sure that there is... Uh, a big change in the ability of us to access computing power potentially to help us as we try and find ways to build some immunity and build some treatments. I'm sure that, that that's a big part of it. There absolutely, it absolutely is. And it's really amazing, you know, having covered the Ebola outbreak in 2014 to observe the changes even in six years in the technologies that are available to us now, the speeds with which companies are working and the speeds with which they were willing to jump into this race is really markedly different from how it was then. And you have to think that the advancement of the technologies in just the last few years are, is a major part of that. One of the bridges I think that ultimately we're going to have to cross one way or another is a kind of ethical bridge. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the big multinational uh, pharmaceutical companies and vaccine companies, uh, they serve a global clientele. Uh, but there are also nations and nation states that are deeply involved in the research for treatment and vaccines. 
And when we come upon a vaccine, when we come upon more effective treatments beyond remdesivir, which has been given that uh, sort of green light for certain uses here, I can well imagine that there is going to be a collision of interests. Who gets the medicines first? Who gets the vaccines first? And in which countries? And who gets the profits? Absolutely. Those are major questions that we're going to see answered in real time. And, you know, these companies now, they, they want to be able to guarantee that everybody will have equitable access. But history tells us there are sometimes supply constraints of, of these things, especially early on. And nations want to secure supply for their citizens first. And then, of course, there are also major questions about the price of these drugs and vaccines. Wall Street uh, is demanding answers from these companies that they invest in about whether they'll see a return on the investment. And so these are major questions that are getting debated right now and will get to play out very soon. Meg Terrell, thanks so much for being with us and for leading the conversation. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. For more information about upcoming virtual CNBC events and how you can join us, it's quite easy. Love to have you. Visit CNBCEvents.com. I'm Tyler Matheson. Take good care. Be well. And thanks for listening. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.